Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 48th episode of the Truth Island podcast. We've all had that feeling of trying to bestow our hard-earned wisdom onto another, especially those that are a lot younger. It is often common for a teacher or parent that has taken a few wrong turns in their life to try and pass on their wisdom to the younger generation in the hopes that they too will heed this advice and not fall down the same pitfalls. But what if this is impossible? What if we as humans can only learn something or truly grasp a life concept until we've had our own reckoning with it? It is often said that pain and suffering remain the greatest teachers, which perhaps is advice that those with little seasoning and gray hair should care to remember. Joining me to help make sense of this issue, I am joined once again with Alexander. Alex, does it really take crocodile tears for us to get something through our thick skulls? Ooh, um, crocodile tears. Let's bring in <laughs> memories. Um, I think crocodile tears definitely help. I don't think it's required, though. I can think of a lot of different experiences where I knew better ahead of time. You know, there's a lot of intuitive moments in my life where I was like, I can determine from this point, this might be a terrible choice. Therefore, I'm not going to do it. And then there's absolutely times when I didn't listen to that and ended up making some pretty terrible mistakes. I don't think it's something that really can be struck as like binary. Do we need it or not? It definitely seems that the larger, more fundamental foundational paradigm shifts might require that. Yes. Yeah. I'm feeling the same thing. And, and the reason I'm, I'm kind of strongly on the side of until you experience it, and I'm not necessarily talking about like, if you go to your banker and he's like, Hey, you need to like invest this way. Like that's stuff that we can definitely learn without necessarily having crocodile tears. But I think when we think of the core touchstones of, of human experience, like breakups and relationships, this is something that it really does take crocodile tears. And let me just share an example from my own teaching career where this is like the most apparent. Being a teacher, I've worked with some other teachers that can be a little too nosy into their students' lives. Like they like to kind of live vicariously through their students, especially when it comes to like relationships. There, there's definitely these teachers that love to talk to their students and be, you know, especially there's a huge bond I think that goes between female teachers and female students. And, you know, the, the, the way this typically rolls out is that the female student will go to the female teacher and, you know, be crying and be like, oh my God, that, that guy I'm dating is such a jerk and he treats me like garbage. And, and like, he, he stood me up for three hours. And then the older female teacher will be like, oh, you really need to get rid of that guy. You, you need to dump him. Your grades are starting to slip. And I've seen this conversation play out thousands and thousands and thousands of times. And the teenage girl never changes, no matter how passionate, no matter how eloquent the older female teacher is, the female student will continue to date the douchebag or whatever um, for, for, you know, for the rest of her high school career. It's not until she's older, she's like at an older stage in life that she realizes, right. oh, okay, these are the types of men that I should avoid. Well, I, I would say thank God that there are female teachers that help, you know, <laughs> high, high school kids or younger because- 
the experience of a female in that age is so different than us as guys, what we had to go through. They can literally bring in a life <laughs> and they're dealing with idiot high school guys. Lord knows I was one of them. I was thinking I knew <laughs> everything in the world, arrogant and cocksure, all, all bullshit. So that kind of teacher relationship, I think is great because those girls need that. And also it's important for them to make those subtle relational shifts early on because there's always a commonality, I think, between relationship choices and how it fits a certain pattern early on. And if it's not adjusted early on, then it becomes a habit. Sure. So, you know, I think that is, uh, that's fantastic. But bringing it back to whether or not we need crocodile tears, tears to learn relationships and matters of the heart. I would say definitively 100% you need crocodile tears. <laughs> <laughs> I, cause I stand I, behind that. Yeah, no, because I think that with these teenage girls and, 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 and so forth, and, and look, I'm sure that guys also maybe later in life also have crocodile tear moments, but I think that what ends up happening is that the behavior never changes um, like they might get upset from from a day to day basis, and their moods might might fluctuate, but it really takes a moment, like a complete breakdown of the soul, in which then, only then, when there's a breakdown of the soul, only then behavior can change. And I think people don't have a breakdown of the soul until a bit later in life. I just don't think it really happens as frequently in your teenage years. It might, maybe there is something that happens at 17 that's a breakdown, right. but for most, <clears throat> I think it happens later. For most, I think it happens later. Um, I would say for most middle-class privileged males, it happens later. I had some serious breakdowns early on. Nothing high school level, but uh, early, early into school, I was bullied. And it was, that was a profound change. And that was way before high school, right? That was coming out of Georgia where the WWE was a big thing. And you, know, <laughs> you had like Lee pipe shorts uh, that went past your knees, kind of like King of the Hill style. <laughs> and it was law of the jungle out there at our Aria Montessori's. And anytime someone crossed the line or like threatened your, your little brother or something like that, you know, it was, it was Smackdown time. It was Stone Cold Steve Austin. It was just like... <laughs> I'm about to, you know, pile drive you like this thing. That was just where I come from. So bullying was a was a thing that was far more prevalent down there. And that had a profound shift on me. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. It's funny that us philosophers love wrestling. Like shout out to Mick Foley. <laughs> um yeah, I, I think that I, I think that maybe for us boys, maybe our teenage years are I want to say now, and it's interesting because I think I, I was also kind of bullied too. And that maybe shifts our, like we become more introspective and more reflective at a younger age as a result of those hardships, like hardships in the sense of social isolation and so forth. And that might cause us to become more reflective at a younger age. I guess if you're a typical male and you have a happy-go-lucky, you know, football playing teenage years, then you probably don't have that crisis until later in life. I would say statistically, you're less likely to have those kinds of crises until probably around 30. Mm. I think a 30 year time segment is a guarantee that you'll have some sort of crisis by then. Wow. Wow. That's... Um, well, I think so. I mean, think, think about just health statistics or 
a family member passing away up until your entire life up until age 30 is a likely situation or somebody you know who's not even in your family could be a friend Mm. So just in terms of health statistics, a death could be one of these uh, instances where maybe a choice is made and you have to experience it through that. I would say up until 30 is a reasonable guarantee that there'll be some sort of massive paradigm shift. I would say like the the two main paradigm shifts for me has 100% been coronavirus. One. Sure. I think that's, yeah. yeah. That's been like my big one. And then before that was probably parents splitting up at a young enough age. Mm, where yeah. you start to question like what that means. Like I, I wrote a children's book about divorce and it's like, it sums up how I feel about relationships and what I learned from that, from that time where it's relationships are, it's, it's an environment, it's an environment as much as it is a social, I don't want to call it contract, but a social understanding, like an agreement. And I had to learn that the hard way because I always thought parents stayed together and no matter what, ride or die. Not the case. I learned that the hard way. So, you know, I couldn't pierce through the veil of what seemed to be the agreed upon modus operandi of household relationships, nuclear family. Yeah, I would love to check out that book sometime, my friend. Like, I, I think that that could be very helpful for, for younger people. And I think that could be like a divorce, especially a very ugly one, could actually be one of those moments of of reflection or the loss of a parent. And then that loss of a parent could come through death or it could come through abandonment and, and so forth. And I think that those those are critical moments that could bring about crocodile tears at a, a much younger age or in a, an accelerated rate of development. I'm also, I mean, I, I it's interesting you say 30. I wasn't aware of this maybe a few years ago, but I'm starting to waken up to this idea of the quarter life crisis, like 25. And, and hear me out on this one. The reason I think that the quarter life crisis is becoming more important is because at 25, there are some critical things going on here. One, you've probably finished your undergrad by that point, you know, give or take. I mean, assuming, you know, not everyone goes to college and so forth, but you finished undergrad or you're now you've spent a couple of years out in the working world. So that, that's number one. Number two, you probably live on your own or have lived on your own to some degree. Like, and this is, you know, like we, we don't, you know, some, I actually lived at home when I was in college. So like this varies, but I think that by the time you're 25, you probably have lived alone for, or with roommates for a while. Mm-hmm. And you've had this experience of having to pay rent. You've had this experience of having to, it, you know, create peace, like peace treaties with other people in your life, whether it be roommates. And you've had to now, especially like when you're a student, like, let me just tell you, you can be very, very, very arrogant. And you can be very, very, very like, I know everything. And no one really calls you out on your shit. But once you hit the corporate world or a job, now you have this creature called a boss and coworkers and you have to hold your tongue. Like I think throughout high school and college, you never really need to hold your tongue. You kind of just speak whatever it is that you feel is right. And okay, whatever, I got like a B minus instead of an A minus because I didn't hold my tongue. But in the real world, if you don't hold your tongue, you get written up and then you get fired. Yeah, compromise. It's a it's a it's a giant pain. The 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 sheerness of what can happen on failed compromise in adulthood is significantly steeper than the consequences of adolescence mm, mm. by by a long shot. 
But I would, I would also argue the counterpoint to that a little bit. I think that there is a lot of compromise in adolescence as well. It solely depends on people's situations. Um, a lot of people compromise themselves to fit in their social structure. I, I, remember, I remember one specific moment in my childhood where my friend group and I tried to, I guess, climb a social ladder like for 15 minutes in one day on one random day in a year where somehow the winds of destiny decided that we should go hang out with this group of people at lunch at this different table in this totally different area. And it was like a statement. And that's so dumb that that exists, but that does exist. Sure. And there was a day when we tried to go there to sit down and make friends with him and make this our typical routine. And it just didn't jive, man. It didn't jive. And we didn't compromise. Key difference with uh, my friend group is that we gave zero shits about any of that. <laughs> and that part, part of that gave us the ability to like cruise between social circles without it being uh, s- some sort of like spectral moment that kids in, in school can try to define it as, you know, to crystallize these attempts to cross a social boundary and become friends. Oh, no, you belong over there. Oh, no, you belong over there. All that crap that goes through school. It was one day we decided to go and sit down with this group of kids. And it was like a big deal because we're all kids and it's done. And we thought it was this like compromise to get into this zone of popularity. Yeah. It was it was like, um, but when we got there, we could tell that this absolutely is not going to work. And it lasted a total of seven minutes and we laughed our asses off. And <laughs> That's compromise. It's interesting because like, this is a very interesting issue because with children, there is more social mobility. Like the rules are not like if you've got 30 kids in a classroom, it's not clear which kid is quote unquote the boss. Like, so there is social mobility within that classroom, but at the same time, and, and this is kind of sad, almost kids do form hierarchies. They actually do form hierarchies of like, um, well, this is the cool kids table. This is where we hang out and you need to, Aaron, you need to go sit over there with your dorky WWE friends and, and just leave, leave us alone and so forth. And I think that in, in, in the adult world, that becomes even more rigid because I think there is some fluidity in the childhood and within the teenage environment. But in the adulthood, it's like, oh, well, this is the table where us uh, assistant principals or us middle managers sit. And this is where the executives sit. Or, you know, you've heard this phrase, the executive suite, right? Or uh, even on an airplane, we have this idea of like first class. And children are not really privy to this idea of first class. They're just like, hey, I'm going to speak my mind to anyone and everyone. I don't have a respect. Whereas somewhere along the lines, especially when you graduate college, you start revering, you know, someone who calls himself a CEO or has the title of being your boss, you realize, shit, this person controls my livelihood. And I think this, this I think the the stakes are that much higher where the boss can starve you. If he if he fires you, you can become homeless and you can be starved. He he has the power to take away your money and empty your refrigerator. Whereas if you piss off the cool kid in high school, you know, like, okay, you might be more socially ostracized, but he doesn't have the power to take away your paycheck. There's a lot of truth to that, but I would say perceived circumstances might be equal. 
hmm. perceived circumstance of a kid locked into a school where he or she is shoved into the locker, verbally abused, soul crushed, turned down, manipulated, where they can't just quit a job and make a career change. There's less horizontal mobility True. in, in adolescence where if you're unfortunately in that category where it could be a lot tougher for you than mm. other friends of yours in that age group, I think it might be worse because also you don't have the wisdom to understand how your own two feet, putting your head together and rising above problems has, you're not at the point where you've done that so many times that it's, it's like the least likely thing to break. Sometimes when you're young, you're still forming that sense of security and that, that sense of uh, that, that habit response, that, that knowledge that you've already jumped out the nest and you're more than capable of setting flight. It's the first step that's always the hardest. So even though your money can be taken away, you can still be pushed to the brink in adolescence too. Yes. And there are plenty of kids who unfortunately – get pushed to addiction. Right. Right now we have an enormous explosion of opioid cases. There's despair. And I'm really worried about what's going to come out the next year and a half since the lockdown of coronavirus and how much that's exasperated that situation. And I honestly feel for every kid out there who feels that way. Absolutely. Alone. And I think, you know, it, it's actually, I love what you're saying here about even though as an adult, you can be deprived of a paycheck, you do have more lateral mobility in the sense of like, okay, I still have the power to go on Craigslist or, or whatever and find another job or another gig or something like that. So I agree with you. Whereas unless your parents rip you out of that school, you're stuck in that crappy public school or wherever it is that you're going until you're 18 years of age. It, is, it does kind of have a prison-like apparatus. One thing that I will say that may have helped my situation is, although like you are stuck in these various prisons in your life, I think what you make of the prison is where wisdom kind of uh, mm. comes into play. And I'll, I'll give you an example from my own life. Yes, I was also bullied and stuff like that when I was in high school. You know, I was also, you know, I was a, a fairly like smart kid, but the thing was, I was a slacker. I was a grade mm. A slacker, lazy, you know, like, oh, 70 on my, what, you know, as long as I'm passing, just keep, keep it rolling, keep it rolling, except for history, which I excelled because I just loved it so much. But with all, <laughs> yeah. The best. yeah, history, I, I rocked it out of the park. But when it yeah. came to like algebra, nah, I, I just was like, okay, I'll, I'll do whatever it takes to just pass. And here's the thing, although the, that this school environment was a prison-like apparatus, I, if, some, if I had had perhaps someone who could have bestowed some wisdom on me and said, hey, why don't you hang out with those really, 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 really like nerdy AP kids? Like, do you remember in school, like AP classes? I never took a single AP class while I was in high school and not because I wasn't smart enough to do it, but because my mind was just not in the right place. Mm. And maybe, and, and, now, and now I'm almost contradicting my earlier stance here, if some older figure would have been like, hey, Aaron, you're never going to be a cool kid, but you could be a nerdy AP kid and you can actually shine in that arena, then maybe I would have like sought my, my, my self-identity within that arena. That's an interesting thought. I didn't 
I wasn't so serious in school either, but I, even today, I don't necessarily put so much value. I know you're going to hate to hear this. <laughs> you're going to hate to hear this most of all. I, I love you, Alex. It's so <laughs> <laughs> love you too, man. But you're going to hate this. I don't put so much value on the structure of schooling. Sure. I put value on the content that we're supposed to learn, but I do not put my faith in the structure of schooling. And that is my personal experience. I've learned 30 times more by following my own whimsies, studying quantum mechanics, or how has the fabric of reality been laid out in symbolism? That was yesterday. <laughs> you know, you know. You're a self-made syllabus, man. <laughs> okay. Wow. Thank you. That, that implies I can spell, which I have not learned how to do yet. I, I just had a chat uh, with a guy by the name of uh, Mike, and he, we also talked about being an audiodidact, like just learning, learning mm. for the sake of learning and, and so forth. And I think that's a valuable, I, I think that's a really valuable thing. I guess when I'm talking about AP classes, I don't mean learning in the sake for the sake of the system, right? But I think that if I had been in those circles where smart people tend to fly, then I could have reshaped my identity my identity to think of myself as a smart person. But in that moment I may have needed someone who had that wisdom to kind of nudge me in that direction whereas I was like okay I'm not a cool kid but I'm not like a AP smart kid either I'm just going to kind of go the route of being a a slacker and I think that was like that that's where maybe someone's lived experience like if I could at this age go back to my younger self I'd be like listen dude you got to push yourself maybe you needed that yeah. You know, maybe you needed that. I mean, look at you now. You're smart as hell. So, <laughs> Thank you, man. You know, did you need AP classes? You needed to express this other lane. And also school, school, I also don't believe school defines somebody either. I really don't. Sure. I think what school is, is a really unique set of circumstances where one can experiment with all sorts of psychotic whimsies to see how they fit in the world. That's what I think school is. It's like, oh, great. I'm going to go try being the jock now. Great. Oh, I got my letter sophomore year playing football. Let's see mm. how I do with this like jockiness. How does, right. does that feel like me? Mm, that doesn't feel like that's me. Even though I tried, I projected, I could tell that didn't, that felt hollow. That's not who I am in my quiet moments. Okay. Maybe that's not me. How about over here? Let's see what this is like to go slack. Maybe that is who I am. No, that doesn't fit either. I think school is more close to that than it is some hero's journey check, checking off a box where it's like, oh, you just finished the Jedi Academy. You're now <laughs> able to defeat Darth Vader. You know, you're the one. Thanks, Neo. I don't think it's like that. I don't think we learned Kung Fu. Right? Are you wearing Star Wars again? Every day, man. I, I that's wear like hilarious. A, like I wear Star Wars or, or some kind of other um, nerdy shirt. It's just it's, That's my uniform right now. It always comes but, back to Star Wars. Everything we talk about. It does, man. Okay, how about this one? Maybe let's say your older self could go back to you at a younger age and not necessarily push yourself to excel in AP classes, but say, Alex, man, you really need to cultivate yourself at of a, as being an autodidact at a younger age. Okay. Now that's the kind of wisdom that could have helped out where it's like, okay, you're, you're the kind of guy that likes to like study quantum mechanics just for fun on a Sunday. Imagine if your older self was pushing you, your younger self to study that stuff at a younger age, how that could 
help your life or could have helped your life. I don't know. Well, I think this brings us back to our question of crocodile tears or not. Yes. What we're also defining are two different versions of learning. Hmm. We're talking about emotional learning. Yes. Crocodile tears. And then rational planning, deciding ahead of time, making Hmm. rational decisions to willfully push through something ahead of time with a degree of predetermination. You're trying to decide through something rationally. I don't know if I work like that that much. If I <laughs> if I had to give myself wisdom, if you were like, okay, Alexander, here's a time machine. You got to go give yourself wisdom. The wisdom isn't me saying, wake up, Alexander. You got <laughs> to listen to more audio. It would be somehow a transference of why I learn mm-hmm. and, the, and the motivation, the emotional motivation as to why do I prioritize learning? Because I could be staring at a book and this goes exactly with my experience as a student in adolescence. I could be staring at a book. I'm 100% capable of knowing this book better than you, teacher. Yes, I just don't care. Right, yeah. I I have no interest in this. Like, you know why I'm skating by? Because this is boring. Mm, mm. It's boring and you're not doing a good enough job of honestly exciting me to the highest capability as a student. And those that do, straight A's. Right. Now this is now this is an interesting one, Alexander. I love I like what you're saying here. Imagine this one, right? Imagine you took your consciousness and mm. transferred it into the body of somebody else. Okay, just someone who doesn't look like you at all. I'm so sorry. I'm <laughs> Body. Huh? I'm, so, I'm so sorry, body, ahead of time, whoever you are. <laughs> this, your, this wasn't my idea. Your consciousness it's, is now transferred to another vessel, another body, and that body doesn't look like you. And then that body goes back in time and finds 15-year-old Alexander. So 15-year-old Alexander doesn't know that that's older Alexander. And then that Alexander tells 15-year-old Alexander, hey, man, you need to be an audio didact. You need to do this, that, or that. You're right. That younger Alexander might just be like, well, screw you, random ass dude. Like, I don't want to listen to you. I don't care what you have to say. Now, right. if you if you identified as being older Alexander, they'd probably listen because you're like, oh, well, that's me in the future. Therefore, I love myself. And therefore, I'm going to like listen to older version of me. But it could be that same exact vice, advice, but because it's not coming from you or your lived experiences, you're probably not going to listen. I also think that that would be a great, that's a great sci-fi movie right there. Go ahead and run with that. That is. I think, <laughs> I think what you just described is the literal map of what an angelic thought is, mm-hmm. which is somehow you acquire knowledge from something that has lived through the finality of these circumstances beforehand and they give you this knowledge and it's like an angelic shoots and ladders congratulations i just gave you a shortcut you know you just skipped candy land right? <laughs> you just landed on the star and you're skipping 30 paces yeah I'm giving yeah. you angelic knowledge don't do it no you know what this actually reminds me of okay so if you've ever played like super mario brothers 3 great game yeah great game right there's something called like the magic flute and that magic flute will take you all the way to the last world or whatever yeah yeah. but then here's the thing man when you skip all those other worlds and you get all the way to the last world you die like crazy because all of those other worlds are actually preparing you for the final world where you fight bowser or whatever it is but if you skip all those intermediary worlds you're not developing the skill set to handle yourself in that harder world and that's where i think angelic knowledge 
does not help us at all because until mm. you've experienced these other worlds and developed the skill sets, none of it's going to make sense. You can't just give somebody the answer key to life if they haven't actually put in the work to understanding it. And I think that's why a lot of people's heroes can all share that similarity of divine circumstance where they're at the right place at the right time under a tremendous amount of pressure. And somehow they're the paste that got squeezed out of the toothpaste tube. They made it through the problem. And, you know, they know, they understand. They were the one of the few who made it through. You're not paying attention to those that didn't because you never heard about them, but you have heard about the ones who did. It could be one out of 10 million, but we see them and we're like, wow, how did their lives put them into those positions over and over and over again? And it might just be that they learned enough early on to be able to listen to angelic circumstance, to that angelic voice, mm. to start making decisions that cuts through the fat and the deviation of life sure. in order to get to a new tier and then rinse, wash and repeat. Maybe that's how somebody can become so magnanimous in such a short amount of time. I mean, funny enough, I was watching these videos of Jim Carrey um, <laughs> and it was making me think of last time we talked about Jim Carrey and it was his first interviews on Letterman, his first interviews on Leno, right? As Dumb and Dumber was, came out, it's supposed to be a big movie. So here's Jim Carrey setting in stone who his personality is to the world. So while he's on these talk shows, not only is he being absolutely hilarious, but he's also weaving in this knowledge into his words about how if you put yourself into the right life's vibe, the right vibration of life, you're going to get a resonance, resonance in return. And so he's cracking all these jokes. Everyone's laughing. They think he's a goofball, but he is dropping knowledge. <laughs> and I look at him and I think, okay, this is a person who had a major struggle early on mm -hmm. and then found a way to drastically alter the course. And by 2015 made $3 billion in ticket sales. What, when did he start making movies? Like 98? 90s. Yeah. That's, that's insane. I think, so I, I think that maybe there are times where we can absorb angelic knowledge, but there has to be a few other moments in your life of crocodile tears that then cultivates that openness to developing angelic wisdom. So I would say like for uh, for me and you, the thing that we both have in common is that we, we experience bullying. So perhaps that bullying created the foundation and the fertileness for us to receive angelic wisdom at a younger age because our negative disposition or our negative um, circumstance or our social isolation allowed us to kind of open up the receptors of wisdom at an earlier age. And maybe other people can receive angelic wisdom, but they haven't experienced a path of, a, a, you know, a path of tears and they're therefore unable to accept angelic wisdom until they have taken their own path of tears. And I guess, I guess this is rather grim, but the more, the more shittier your life is, the more open you are to angelic wisdom because so many things have gone wrong. Isn't it weird how it works like that? But there's always that balance. There's mm -hmm. always that dichotomy. A classic example, this galaxy that we're spinning around right now as we hold this lovely podcast and, of course, listen to each other speaking. Sure. We're spinning around in this gaseous galaxy that's brought together by an enormous destructive black hole in the center. So it's like you have the light and the dark. So 
physically present. And without one, you don't have the other. The gas wouldn't have mixed up into the primordial soup that's the Milky Way without this tremendous, terrible void soaking everything in and destroying it completely. Yet in life, you need to have moments where it feels like you're, you're running through the void in order for things to kind of fit together. And there's always that uh, dichotomy I hear um, successful people say, where they say, I just want to make sure my kids had a better life than what I had. Yet at the same time, it was their life that made them into a successful person. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. I, I think I think this is why in history you have all of these like really great rulers, all of these really great kings, and, and maybe the contemporary version is like these CEOs and so forth. And they go on and do great stuff and their kids pop out and they're either mediocre or, or perhaps even worse. They, they do nothing with their lives or do something uh, very destructive with their lives. You know, we think of this as the uh, cocaine snorting trust fund baby or something, something along those lines. And I think it's because their life has been they haven't had crocodile tears and darkness because because daddy always took you to Disney World whenever you wanted, mm-hmm. that didn't require you a deep level of introspection and deep levels of reflection. So I, I think it's also wise and, and people laugh at Bill Gates and stuff like when he says, oh, I'm not going to leave all my money to my kids or, or Warren, Warren Buffett says the same thing. And it's like maybe they realize that if there isn't darkness in that childhood or or rough patches, if you would, then their adversity. children, yeah, adversity, that's a much better word, thank you, then they are not going to be able to walk upon a wise path. I think they're 100% correct. I would say that you have to strike that balance. I think really the best, the best structure I could approach parenting is to try to be the net underneath their mistakes. Sure. And to not necessarily direct them away from them too much. Of course, I, I I don't have a kid, so that could be the absolute worst strategy of all time. <laughs> no, I think I think you're. I mean, look, I, I don't have kids either, but from a teacher, I will say this: you have to let your kid relish in. Like a lot of parents, kind of jump in and they want to correct everything that they see going wrong. There, there is, or or just they'll argue with the teacher, be like, "No, you're a big mean teacher person. How dare you fail my child or whatever it is?" And there isn't this period for a lot of parents where they just let their child be like, you screwed up really badly, my friend. Why mm. don't you go ahead and just think about that for a while? Like there need, there doesn't Damn, even- that tone <laughs> done that before <laughs> you've done that before. I was like, all of a sudden I'm back in like fourth grade. Like, what did I do? <laughs> no, I think, I think that that kind of stuff is really pure gold parenting there because you are, you are not trying to sedate or you're not trying to put a band-aid over your child's screw up and make it seem okay. Now, look, if your kid is arrested or something, of course, you're going to hire the best lawyers or whatever, if you have the money to like get them. You don't want them to have a criminal record and, and like just completely freaking derail their life off the, off the, off the tracks or what, if you would. But at the same time, it's like if they're failing a class, you can't just sedate them and you can't just, you need to let them to relish in that pain. It's a part of the growth process. Yeah. And I think that really brings up a qualitative versus quantitative wisdom question. Sure. I feel like nowadays people are so focused on making sure quantitatively that all mistakes are corrected or adjusted, but that shouldn't be the goal. 
the goal should be the quality of the learning experience, not that every learning experience is forcibly adjusted. Mm-hmm. And especially in school and colleges, these progressive colleges that in a lot of ways are coddling children, you need to be able to have a forum in order to make objection. And I think with that comes a little bit of coddling mm-hmm. of, of the adolescent mind. But they're so focused on the quantitative wisdom aspect as opposed to the quality of their students' questions, sure. the quality of their objections, and the quality of the wisdom that they obtain during their time there. And we need to get back to that Yes, quickly. Yes. And you know what, though? Like th- This has happened to me in college, and I hope this still happens in college. I really do. But there, there were times where I said something in college, and you know, somebody got offended or somebody laughed at me, but this was all a learning experience. And one of two things happened. The people laughed at me or whatever, and then I proved them right. Or they all laughed at me and they proved themselves, you know, they proved that I was wrong. And I think both of those interactions are highly formative and they're highly, highly, highly needed because like you, 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 because if you prove yourself right in college, then your people, people, you now have taught the class something and you have now affirmed your own convictions. But if everyone laughs at you or gets offended, then maybe they have some wisdom that you're missing and they can kind of fill that in for you. And then in turn, you can be grateful and be like, you know what, that was highly ignorant of me. Thank you guys. Thank you liberal arts classmates for like sharing that wisdom upon me. And now I can go out into the real world and be a lot more smarter. But if everything is highly curated and highly sheltered, then those moments of embarrassment never happen. And if those moments of embarrassment never happen, you don't really learn anything. It needs to be messy. It's got to be a confusing jarbling of experiences that you somehow squeezed yourself out of. Yes. And also students need to understand these young leaders coming up in the world, just directly facing these enormous issues that we've procrastinated on that are now slowly being shifted to be dealt with by current high schoolers, kids in West Point, those going for doctorate degrees. They're going to have to deal with these issues. No one cares. No one life. Life is so much bigger than these problems and in the room that a qualitative approach is so much more important. It's not about tallying and checking when someone does something right or wrong. It's about philosophically speaking, and maybe a little bit leaning on the nihilist perspective. No one cares. You're not going to be here long enough. So there's, there's also an element of just, it, it shouldn't, there, the fragility of it all shouldn't be there because the wisdom, the quality and the wisdom is that you're this tightly packed group of, of cells, of atoms to make matter. You're here for a blip of the illusion of time. Mm-hmm. We have no idea where we are in perspective of the rest of the universe. Everything that we assume is correct gets altered every 150 years and the paradigm drastically shifts to a point where it's unrecognizable constantly all the time. Why are people so focused on making sure other individuals in this crazy, insane universe that they they have to be checked saying they're wrong? Of course, there's a boundary saying you got to fight oppression. That's different, but I'm just talking about the pettiness, the Karens, 
the, the people freaking out, the, the fragile students, they have to understand you're, you're so young. No one, no one cares. This is the world you're going into. So like, where do you, where do you strike that love center? Where do you strike that passion? And the passion is in the experience of humanity and getting quality out of it and knowing that everyone's wrong 24 seven, no one's driving the ship in a way. It's like, <laughs> got to just be there for the ride. And the quality of that is where I think forgiveness of what people say comes from my personal beliefs of freedom of speech, where that comes from, and the true sense of community, where what you say and do, opposed to like violence, and the obvious, right, doesn't have to affect me if I don't let it. I want to pick on something that you said, and, and I might, I think that with the quantitative and the qualitative learning experiences, I think it's actually a a healthy respect and appreciation for both. And I, I wouldn't like, I'm not, a, I, I am a qualitative thinker, 100%. I am definitely not a, a quantitative thinker. I'm a qualitative. However, I have a healthy respect for my quantitative friends. I do have a respect for them. The problem is, Alex, they don't have a respect for me. And th this is where the danger kind of lies where, uh, you know, especially in my time in grad school, I've been told a thousand times in grad school, Aaron, if you are not a data scientist, if you do not have your R and your Python and your quantitative methods down flat, you will never find a job. You going out into like an urban area and studying trends and the, the, no one will ever read your stuff. No journal will ever publish what it is you're doing unless you have your R and your Python down solid. And this is where this kind of distresses me where it's like, I have a healthy respect for the people who think of the world in those metrics. I love you guys. I God bless you for being out there. Why can't you love me in turn? Why, why can't you respect that somebody is going out there and journaling their experiences and writing down on the ground insights? And then you could take those on the ground insights and put them in a laboratory or put them through data software and make more sense of it. But I'm like, we, you know, we're brother and sister. We're helping, you know, one hand feeds the other. And I think that there is this trend in academia, you know, even in the social sciences of don't, don't try and go out there and, and be like what um, Upton Sinclair did, you know, going out there or what Orwell did before he wrote 1984. These were like investigative journalists that just went out there and, and explored the world around them, wrote about it, and then the quantitative folks took it over, you know, but they're the ones that actually came up with the question and the philosophical intrigue. And then, and then you can pass the buck to someone else. Well, I think you just brought up the whole Apollonian debate or the Dionysian debate. What's better? Do you prefer to have it in a structure where your resume has the appropriate size margins and your font type is acceptable for this financial institution, sir? <laughs> Thank you. Or are you able to just walk in the room and start talking shop and be able to just answer challenges that pop up right there on the go? I would say that people who lean too much on the Apollonian, they, they concern me. I don't trust them. There needs to be a little bit of Dionysian in there, in my opinion. There's got to be a little messiness. That's just the artistic side of me. That's the creative side of me. I think that in order to fill a space neatly, the way that they wish their Apollonian attitude towards making sure you have that R in there, that Python, what you said, is you need to have an expanse, an expansive thought process first.
Yes. It's like you want to, it starts out as a gas. It's exploded. You have a big bang of an idea. Hmm. It's all gas just scattered across space and time. And then as you rationalize your thought, the hubris starts melting away like a butter. It starts closing in more towards a plasma and like, okay, I'm starting to see this take shape, but you got to have that expanse first to bring it in. Yes. Yeah. You know what, Alex, I, I actually think that we should table this for a whole nother podcast on itself. Ooh, I, I think, I think exciting. that I, I think that we, we need, we need to do some service to the qualitative versus quantitative world. Alex, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. This concludes the 48th episode of the Truth Island podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.